time, if any of the children need to go, see Mrs. Anderson's going over here. This time, oh, yes, that's right. Okay, you find a good spot right there. Excuse me, at least she's, that's great. Trinity, this way, honey. Oh, the big girl's room. Boy, it doesn't get any better than that, Trinity. Okay, any other little ones that need to go? Larry? No, you stay here, okay? All right, let's, oh, by the way, can we get it a little bit warmer in here? I think they're hanging meat up here without telling us. It's, it's, awful, it's awfully cold. Well, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that we could be here today, the Lord's people on the Lord's day. And what a gift that is, the gift of each other, the gift to know each other well, to know our hurts, our struggles, and to know what a great Savior we have. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have been working in our lives, the way you have been working in this church. As we get closer, coming up to a third anniversary, we would just thank you, Lord, for the way that you have worked in miraculous ways for us. You've shown your care and your love in so many ways and through so many people. And we're grateful that we have a great Savior. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of the gospel, that we have a great Lord in our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us go through times of disappointment, discouragement, hurt, not sure what's going on. And all of us go through that. Sometimes, you know, you know, guys that are not just guys, but women that their dream is to start a new business and they get a business going and they're looking forward how great that's going to be and finds out it doesn't work all that well and it's pretty weak and it's pretty discouraging. There's other people who are like, you know, I really wanted to get that college degree and I'm two-thirds there and I'm out of money and the discouragement of, oh, I'm so close, I wish I could have done something. We all deal with this discouragement. We all struggle at times with like, oh, why did it have to be? What we've got in our passage this morning is a massive kind of discouragement. Because it's not talking just about one person or a group of people. It's talking about the Apostle Paul, who's finding himself in a time of great discouragement. And I don't think this is coming up, but it should be. Let's see if we have it online. We do. Yep, here we are. That's good. Thank you. Except it's not going. Hang on one second. We'll see. There we go. No? Here we go. We're good. Thank you. It's all about the fact that the Apostle Paul's heartache is the fact that he is a Jewish man, a man who grew up in that culture, his family, his friends, all about the Jewish culture, all the wonderful things in that culture. And he had seen how the gospel had changed his life. And yet he looks around to his people and he realizes most of them aren't coming to Christ. And for him, that is a massive disappointment. Why is it that my own people, the Jewish people, aren't coming? 
the irony that Paul looks at and says, they may not be coming, but a whole lot of other people are coming. A lot of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, they're coming to Christ. They're hearing the good news of the gospel. And they're understanding the fact that they are saved by God's grace through faith. Not through what they do, but what Christ has done for us on the cross. And because of that, he's thankful to see God doing this. There are churches being brought together, churches that are growing, people who are coming to know Christ. And yeah, there's some Jewish people that are coming to faith in Christ, but not in the way he thought it would be. He was longing and looking forward to his own people, that there'd be a harvest of Jewish people recognizing Jesus as their Messiah and Lord and coming to him, and it wasn't happening. And it raised a real theological and a personal issue. What's, is there something wrong in the gospel? Is there something we're not doing right that my own people, my, maybe my brother or maybe his sister, or them, why is it they are not coming to the gospel when all these people from pagan groups are coming and they're, they're grateful to be with the Lord and to, and to understand it? And, and Paul is saying, what is going on here? To talk about disappointment, it's like, these are my people. I love my people. And why is it they're not coming? This is the core of what our passage is going to be. And if you have, you could turn this to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. This is the chapter we're looking at right now. This passage in Romans chapter 9 is part of two other ones. Chapter 9, 10, 11. We're not trying to do that all at one time. Just chapter 9. But Paul, he had been talking about in chapter 8 where he talked about the wonderful things that God was doing. Nothing can separate us from the Christ and all that things. Chapter 9 is a very different chapter. It has a very different feel to it. Because where that one was all about the triumph of what God has done in us and through us, that now it's dealing with something which is very, very difficult. Why is it that people aren't coming, my own Jewish people? So it's very clear. The passage we have now, this isn't Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is a lot easier chapter to teach and to preach. But the reality is it's still important. It's God's word. And because it's God's word, we do it. It's an essential part of the whole thing that Paul is saying. And so we are going to be going through this passage, and I'd really encourage you to stay as, con you know, as connected as you can to it, because Paul is dealing with a really important question. Why are my people, in general, not coming? And is there something wrong with me, or is there something wrong with the gospel? And so this is an important one. The chapters 9, 10, 11 are going to be dealing with this one. We're only dealing now in chapter 9. And so this is an important thing that we're doing. Listen what he starts off this way. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I find that so funny that he has to say that. I mean, he's known not to be a liar, but he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit. And then this part he says in verse 2, that I have intense sorrow and continue anguish in my heart. This is a man who in one sense is heartbroken over the fact that his own people in general are not coming. And for him to realize maybe my grandfather is not coming, 
my sister's not coming. And I'm considered an outcast because I'm telling that Gentiles can come and have the same relationship with God than we have. Uh-huh, no people want to do that. Jewish people didn't want that. Paul said, it is true. But his own people in general were not coming. He says, I have continual anguish in my heart. He's a broken-hearted man in that sense to know that those that he's closest to his Jewish family members and friends, most of them are not coming to faith in Christ. And so he says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my countrymen, by physical descent. By the way, that word cursed in, in Greek, it's that word anathema. It's like this idea of like being completely rejected. He said, I, I, I'd be willing to be rejected by God if, if only my, my family, my brothers, my sisters, my Jewish friends would come to faith. And so far, they're not. And so he said, for the, my brothers, my countrymen of physical descent. In other words, I'm Jewish. My father's Jewish. We all go back for a long, long generation after generation. And I've come and I've seen how God has worked through my life. And I see Gentiles coming, getting saved, but I don't see a lot of my Jewish friends and family coming to faith. And that's an issue for him. And then what he says now here in, in here in these next few verses is saying, think about all the things that God gave to the Jewish people. Think about all the things that God has given to the Jewish people. Look at it. He says, they, the Jewish people, are Israelites. They're part of that group of Israel. To them belongs the adoption. It's unusual. The phrase is not used often that way, but it's that idea of God adopted the Israelites to be his chosen people. He said, my people, they're the Israelites. They have the adoption. That, excuse me. He said, they have the glory, the glory of being God's children. They have the covenants particularly the covenant, the covenant, the new covenant they could have if they would come to faith. The giving of the law. They've got the law. They've got the temple service, this unbelievable, beautiful temple where people could come in and worship the Lord and, and to have all these wonderful things and Paul says, and yet they're not coming. Why is this happening? He said they have the temple service, they have the promises, the many promises that God had led them through, through all these generations. He said the forefathers are theirs. In other words, all these generation after generation, all these great rabbis who were teaching us all these wonderful things. He said they have their, they have their forefathers are there, they have by physical descent, in other words, they're in the right line, they've got the right DNA, we might say. He said the, D, uh, excuse me, he said by physical descent, came the Messiah, who's God above all. In other words, what a, per, what, a, what a group of people, the Jewish people, what a privilege they've had to be the ones to bring the Messiah that's going to bring salvation to the world. And it's like, whoa, it doesn't get any better than that. All this is yours, Jewish people, my brothers, my sisters, my aunts and uncles. All of this is yours. Then why are you not coming? when Paul pronounces that Jesus is truly the Messiah. Now, in one sense, you can kind of understand it. They've had generation after generation of saying, this is what it's about. And their idea of the fact that when Messiah comes, boy, it's going to happen. 
And when that happens, there's going to be wars and things and terrible things, but we're going we're to have a, a leader who's going to lead us by power, and we're going to be in charge of the world again like we used to be. And instead, they said, really? Well, it doesn't seem like that's happening, isn't it? And you've got this dead guy named Jesus that you want us to uh, worship? And they're going, yeah. Paul's going, yeah, that's right. And they're going, we don't get it. It's like, well, how can you not get it? Now, that's not the way Messiah is going to come. Messiah is going to come with power, warfare. Paul says, no, it's not the way it's going to be. He's coming in a manger, and he's going to be killed. And people are like, we've had enough killing. Why do we want to worship another one that was killed? Why do we need that? And so he says, notice what he says here. He goes on and said, it's not though the word of God has failed. He had to make the statement like that. Because everybody's going to ask the question, well, what happened to the harvest? Why is it that the people haven't come? Why isn't his own people, his own family, have not come to faith? And that's why he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. It sort of looks that way. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That is an unusual verse, but it's a very important verse. Notice what he says. He said, Though, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And what he's basically saying is, wait a minute, you're so proud that you've got the DNA. Of course, they didn't know what DNA was, but get the idea of it. They're connected from generation to generation. He said, yeah, you got the physical DNA. But he's saying there's something that's even more important than that, and that's the spiritual DNA. You may have the physical relationship father son father son father son going all the way back to abraham but he's saying there's something that's even more important than that now if we had a rabbi sitting here he might have a stroke just listen to me saying this but i'm following what the apostle paul taught and so notice he said for not all who are descended from israel are israel Verse 7, neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. Again, if a rabbi here say, no, they are. If, if, listen, if, they were, if these men were, were, were uh, circumcised, they belong to the covenant. They're in. They've got everything they need. And he says, no, neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. On the, contract, on the contrary, he says, in Isaac, your seed will be called. What Paul is going to be doing here is he's using illustrations from the Old Testament to describe what's happening. Because he says here, he said, on the contrary, Isaac, in Isaac, your seed will be called. Now, if you remember the story, what happened, remember who was the first child that Abraham had? It wasn't Isaac. It was Ishmael. And so going by the normal thing of saying father, son, father, son, you would assume that the promise would come through Ishmael, but it's not. Instead, it went to Isaac. It's basically saying, you know what? It doesn't have to be ABC, ABC. It's saying, God's saying, I've got the grill, I got the will, and to do what I want to some that are going to be given this and some that are not. He's making a case of saying that because God is free. And God can do what he wants with his people. He can change things around. And because you think, because it's always been this way, my Jewish friends, he said, God has the freedom to change things very, very quickly. He can, and he does. 
So look at this next passage. He says, that is, it's not the children of physical descent who are God's children. Now the Jews would be saying, of course it is. That's exactly what it is, one generation after another. But notice this, but the children of the promise are considered seed. It's an unusual phrase, but his point is saying, God has given these great promises and he can do what he wants with his people. And so verse nine, he says, for this is the statement of the promise. Now this is another example, this time during Sarah. At this time, I'll come and Sarah will have a son. Notice what it says. And not only that, but also, now he uses Rebecca as an example. When Rebecca became pregnant by Isaac, our forefather, for though they had not yet been born or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, he said, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was said, the older will serve the younger. In other words, that's opposite of what you'd expect. The older one will serve the younger. No, 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 the younger one serves the older, right? No. Once again, it's saying, here's your rules, what you want to do. God says, I have my rules, and they're different than yours. He's saying God is free. God is sovereign. God can choose what he wants to do. This passage is very, very strong on the issue when we talk about God's freedom and God's mercy and what he does. So notice what he says in this next slide. He said, as it's written, and this is a hard verse. I'll be right up straight on it. As it's written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. Ugh. A lot of us go, um, I thought Jesus loves me, this I know. Yeah, I, I, that's all true. But here, in the, particularly in the Old Testament, he's making the state of saying, you know what? Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. Maybe another put it, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I haven't loved. It's maybe a better way of understanding it. But it's saying, once again, it doesn't go in the correct order, what you think it might be. Why? Because God's chosen it to do it this way. He is God. He is free. He is the one who's ultimately in control. So notice what he says. What should we say then? Well, is there injustice with God? And then he uses this great phrase in Greek. Greek, meganoita. No way. No way. God's not unjust. Well, some people say, well, it sort of sounds that way. He says, no, no way, mega noita. And then what he does, he says, okay, let me give you another example. And he says in verse 15, for God, he tells Moses, this is chapter, I think, 33, if I remember it correctly. Says, he, said, he tells Moses, listen, I will show mercy to whom I show, show mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Once again, I'll do the choosing. Now, we live in a culture where it's all about personal freedom. It's all about me, myself, my wants, my needs. When he's saying here, you know, I have the choice to say who I'm going to show mercy to and who I'm not going to show mercy to. Because maybe God needs to bring judgment upon some who have turned away. So he says, so then it doesn't depend on human will or effort, but upon God who shows mercy. Now, let me stop for a second. I know people, there are people that would read something like this and say, oh, so what are we? Are we little robots? Oh, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Tell me what to do. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying we don't have choices, but he's saying ultimately it's God's choice above our choice. 
and thank God for that. I'm really thankful we have a God that's willing to overrule some of the stupid things that I would have done or said. But I had a God who said, no, we're not doing that. You knucklehead. He didn't use that word, by the way. But he said, listen, this is what I'm going to do. So then it doesn't depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For this scripture, going back to Pharaoh, for the scripture tells Pharaoh, quote, for this reason I raised you up so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be claimed in all the earth. In other words, saying, is part of what happened with this whole story of the Exodus of saying, you know what, Pharaoh, you're going to find out real quick who really is in charge. You thought all this time that you're in charge and you'll do what you want to do. Well, we have a way of dealing with that around here and it ain't going to be nice. And what he's saying is, you know what, Pharaoh, I brought you up so I could bring you down. You've treated our people awfully for such a long time. You have been so cruel to them. And what's that happened? We're going to change things here real quick. He said, for this reason, I raised you up, Pharaoh, that I could display my power in you. And my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord's saying, you know, you think you're number one. You're not. You're nothing compared to what God is going to do to you. Then he says in verse 19, you'll say to me, therefore, well, when one does, when, how does, excuse me, when does he uh, f f find fault? For who can resist as well? In other words, it seems like, oh, we're just pirates just doing what he says. But who are you, anyone, who talks back to God? He's kind of turning around to him and saying, really? Are, do you, are you feel right in telling God what he needs to do? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, well, why did you make me like this? Now notice what he says in this next thing. He says, or has the potter no right over his clay to make from same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? Know what he's doing. You know, a lot of you have used clay as a kid, or maybe some of you have done that in terms of things that you've made. So you know, you've got the, got the mud, I guess not the mud, whatever you call it. You've got the clay, and you're working it, and you're getting it the right way you want it. And it's saying, okay, I've got a whole bunch of it. What do I want to do? Okay, this one, I'm going to take this group, and I'm going to make a chamberman place, so, you know, where you can people go. To, it's like a bathroom if you need to in your house, okay? He said, what about this group? I'm going to make this big hunk into a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place, a piece of a majesty, majesty in its work, just gorgeous. In other words, he's saying, wait a minute. God, I mean, he's saying, we use the exact same clay, one to go to the bathroom, and we had the other one to see the beauty of what the sculptor did. And he's saying, does God have a choice in doing that? Absolutely. He said, or has the potter no right over his clay? Yeah, God decided this is going to be a chamber thing where we can go to the bathroom. He can say this is going to be a beautiful thing. He said, for, is this for honor or dishonor? Nobody says. And what if, remember he's saying, what if? He's using this kind of like, what about if I want to do this? And what if God, desiring to display his wrath, what if he wants to do that? and to make his power known, endured with much patient objects of wrath ready for destruction. In other words, God's been seeing their sin and all their awful things they've done for years after years after years. Is it okay that you think that if God who desires then to bring wrath upon him, is that okay with you? Does he really need your permission to do what he's doing? He is like the ultimate one who has the clay and who's going to bring it about. He said, and what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy? 
that he prepared forehand for glory and on whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Don't I not have the right to say, I'm going to work with my Gentile people, my non-Jewish people, but I'm also going to be working with my Jewish people. But he said, you know, they don't seem to be coming in general. What if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on the objects of mercy? Notice what he says. And here it's kind of unusual. He uses a couple quotes from the Old Testament and it's, they're unusual ones. Most of us probably have not memorized this any time for a long time. It says this, and also he says in Hosea, Hosea is not the book you often think you'd go for that. He said, I will call not my people, my people. Who is he talking about? The Gentiles. The people that were not, quote, God's people. All these uncircumcised, dirty pagans who now are coming to Christ. He said, all these not my people, that yucky kind of people that the Jews look down on. He says, you know what Hosea said? He said, I will call my, not my people, the yucky people. God's going to call them my people. In other words, it's the Gentiles particularly that are coming in faith. Then he goes on and says, and she who is unloved, that is the, un, the people that have not come to faith in Christ, particularly those who are not uncircumcised. There are those who are the, we call the dirty, the scummy people. He says, no, God said it's different. He said, the one who said he was unloved, it's beloved. And it'll be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. They're going to be called sons of the living God. Now, this passage right here is very, very important because what Paul is saying. He's saying, you were not my people, but now you are. They will be called the sons of the living God. He's saying, there's an amazing thing happening here. Israel, God's people, the Jewish people, in general are not coming. But boy, you ought to see all the Gentiles that are coming. And what Paul's going to be doing next week when you talk to Paul's going to be talking a little bit about this, how God is going to work on the people in Israel so they would see who Christ is. But right now, he's making this point. My own people are not coming yet. But he said, there's others coming. They're hearing the good news of the gospel. And God is doing a great work in their lives. And so in chapter 20, verse 27, it says, But Isaiah, now here's Isaiah gets a chance to take a passage. But Isaiah cried out concerning Israel, quote, Though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea. Remember we talked about, you hear that passage in Genesis? Abraham, and if you could see all the sand in the sea, okay? And he said, though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, notice this next phrase, only the remnant will be saved. This is a very key phrase right there. It's saying in the midst of the thousands and thousands of Jewish people, he's saying, you know what? There's only going to be a small remnant that are left. And that becomes an important theme, particularly in chapters 10 and chapter 11 as we get to it. He said, for the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth for those that have rejected him. And like just as Isaiah predicted, quote, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a seed, we would be like, be like Sodom. We'd be like Gomorrah. In other words, if God in his mercy had not protected us, we'd be wiped out like in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he goes on with this last passage. He says, what should we say this? What should we say then? Now notice this key phrase. Gentiles, non-Jewish people, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness 
have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. Here's the big change. These scummy people that they look down on, the heathen, are coming to faith, they're coming to Christ. And what they're doing, they're finding the righteousness that comes not from doing all the good things, but by recognizing that through God's mercy, they are ones by faith are accepted by God. That's the sad irony. The pagans are coming and coming to know Christ. His own people, the Jewish people in general, are not coming. And that goes back to the anguish that he has in his heart. And so he says, verse 31, but Israel, talking about them as a people, pursuing the law for righteousness has not achieved the law, the real child, the spiritual law. And then it ends with this interesting phrase. Why is that? Why is Israel not coming? Notice what he says. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were by works. That is a key phrase right there. People say, hey, I'm bulletproof. My grandfather was a, was a priest in the thing, and my great-grandfather was so-and-so, and Rabbi so-and-so was my friend, da-da-da-da. He goes, really? So that makes you then bulletproof that you're going to, yeah, oh, because I'm Jewish and I'm circumcised, I'm, I'm good. Paul says, no, you're not. You're not. He's saying the relationship you want with God, the God, the relationship you desire most, he said, that's not going to come by you doing the law. It's going to come by faith. But as if it were by works, he said, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. This little phrase about the stumbling stone occurs in several places, First Peter, other places as well. And what's interesting about the stone that they talk about here, it can have two different ways of looking at it. You could say, okay, this is a stone right here that's a really good stone, and it's a strong stone, and it's something I could maybe build my pillars and my house on. So the idea of stone can have this idea of strength, power. On the other hand, you can be walking along and toink, and you're on the ground. You can either build upon the rock, or you can trip across the rock. And what he's saying is, Israel tripped off the rock. Not all of them. There's always going to be a remnant, he just said. But he's saying, in general, God's people are not coming. And so you think a person who lived with anguish for a long time? It's the Apostle Paul. These are the people he knew, the people he loved, the people he's with his own family members. Many of them said, not for us. We've got Abraham. That's enough for us. Paul says, it ain't enough. It's about a relationship with God, and you're missing it. This passage is absolutely important for us. He said, as it is written, he said, look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, yet the one who believes on him who will be not, be not be put to shame. His point is pretty clear about the people of Israel. He's speaking in the big group here in terms of Israel and the, and the non-Israelite the non people. He's saying, you're either going to find this as the pillar upon which you stand, this rock, but if you trip, by not believing what I just said, you're going to fall. And that's what makes this passage so interesting. He said, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over 
a rock to trip over, yet for the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. For us now, it gives us an even uh, understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel. You got to do something with Jesus. You're either going to stand upon him as the foundation of which you have your faith, knowing that by God's grace, by his mercy, not by anything you have done, but by sheer mercy and grace, God has made you his son, his daughter, and you have found a place on the rock to stand. Or you can trip and fall on your face and be apart from God. It's one or the other. You're either going to try to find your stability on the rock or you're going to trip over the rock and be apart from God. It's a sobering message. It's supposed to be. And we'll hear a little bit more about it next week. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, a man who in many ways went through so much suffering not just for his travels, not just for the things he went through, not just for all the beatings, but the problem and the brokenness of not seeing his own family and people, for the most part, not coming. That they have tripped over the rock instead of stood standing upon that rock. Be with us as we continue in our worship, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>